Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. What's going on, everybody? It is 1 o'clock, Saturday, July the 11th, 2020, and it is time for this, the, I believe, 78th trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, husband, father three, full-time job with overtime right now, like a lot of overtime, like enough overtime to have actually made a dent in the life of debt that we've been living, but I digress. Somehow, some way, we find our way to make competitive magic work. Find ways to improve at magic despite time and financial budgets. So what's been going on while we've been away? Well, standard's really... Standard is every cat at 3 o'clock in the morning right now. I am very fast. Ramp decks abound. The end game is the only game. Like, that's just... That's, that's what standard has kind of devolved into... I've uh, been poking around with some ideas on some decks that I like playing in Historic and trying to kind of get a foothold when it comes to Pioneer. But by and large, we're kind of in a rut right now. Uh, Wizards announced the suspension of in-store play until minimum Zendikar Rising pre-release. Minimum. So at least until October, no in-store play, no pre-releases, no big tournaments no 1ks like if you're gonna sanction it better be online with that in mind something i'm considering let me know if you're interested is doing arena fnms for listeners of this podcast it's definitely going to be something we're going to learn together as we go on how effectively we can do it but it's also definitely something i want to do if we can having said that Since we're talking about the possibility of free standard tournaments, that's a really good value. Let's talk about what value means to Magic players. Because that's the goal of this episode. I want to talk about value. Because there is, if there's three words I've heard over my time playing Magic more than any others, including end of turn, and then they reach for cards in their hand. It's more than that. It's, but the value. So I thought this would be a good time to take a look deep into what value is in terms of like in-game explanations and how each deck tries to leverage its own particular brand of value. And we'll do it through the lens of standard and historic rather than, you know, going way down the history rabbit hole again. Because, quite frankly, the current standard, traditional concepts of value have been kind of hard to come by. (laughs) With that in mind, let's start. What is value? The most strict definition of value, the one that most players leverage the most without consciously realizing it, but the ones they're usually the most interested in, 
We're talking about card advantage. And in its purest form, what I call raw card advantage, you gain value by getting two cards for every one that you spend. Whether it's taking two from your opponent or gaining two extra for every one that you spend. The idea is to always be generating one extra card if your goal is raw card advantage. With that in mind, you know, we have some examples in standard right now of classic unfiltered raw card advantage. Cards like Chemister's Insight, cards like uh, See the Truth when it's cast from anywhere but the but the hand. Any any scenario where you spend mana and a card to get back more than one card in the most literal sense. That is raw card advantage. Moving from raw to incremental or the the style of value that I see leveraged the most at the higher levels. Incremental card advantage is exchanging resources on a one-for-one basis. In other words, you are spending a card from your hand with the express purpose of trading it for one card from your opponent. But then that one-for-one exchange will leave you something behind. A really good example of this are three mana creatures that enter the battlefield and draw a card. That's incremental card advantage. You are spending a card to replace itself, dig a little deeper into your deck, but at the same time you're also leaving behind a creature that presumably will either trade for one of your opponents or a removal spell in their hand. Planeswalkers are another really good example of incremental card advantage because frequently planeswalkers are deployed. Cards like Teferi Time Raveler, cards like uh, Chandra Awakened Inferno, Vraska, Golgari Queen. You are deploying these cards with the express purpose of removing an opposing threat and then leaving behind a planeswalker that your opponent has to deal with. Narset Parter Avails is another really good example. You spend three mana. Minus two, go get a thing. So she replaces herself and then leaves behind a planeswalker that sometimes will trade with an opponent's removal spell or an opponent's burn spell or, you know, an opponent, an opponent's scorching dragon fire or an opponent's combat step. That's what incremental card advantage is about. By contrast, snowballing card advantage is typically utilized more by... Well, I'm not, we'll get into what decks like to use it later, I suppose. But snowballing card advantage is instead of getting your value up front and then expecting it to trade later, you are taking the one-for-one trade on face value with the possibility of getting value later the more times you get to use it. Cards like Staggering Insight, cards like Curious Obsession, cards like Phyrexian Arena, they represent snowballing advantage. The idea that the more times you get to untap with this card, the more advantage you're going to generate. And then as we transition from card advantage to the other primary form of value in Magic gameplay, this one kind of hits the perfect medium crossing missing link point to talk about virtual card advantage which is the idea that you are not actually trading with cards, 
but you are trading with cards that don't exist yet. A really good example of this is building your deck with very few permanents that, exp uh, that opponent's removal can target. So while they may have a bunch of cards in their hand, a lot of them are dead. Or building, you know, counter spells sometimes represent virtual card advantage. When they trade with a piece of raw card advantage on a one-for-one -one basis, strictly speaking, you've traded one-for-one, -one, but you virtually gained the cards that you denied your opponent. Uh, creatures that require multiple answers in theory, i.e. when you're playing against a deck that only has red removal and you've got creatures that the toughness outsizes that red removal, that theoretically is a two-for-one for your opponent to deal with. You know, Rotting Regisaur against Team of Reclamation is a really good example. It's just too big for them to trade with on a one-for-one -one basis. And then the Philosophy of Fire being the last form of virtual card advantage. Philosophy of Fire is about um, it was first proposed by one Adrian Sullivan way, way, way back. We don't like to talk about Adrian Sullivan, but this philosophy still rings true. The idea that if on rate you will spend one mana and a card for two damage, which is what we do in standard with shock. If you will spend one mana and two damage, or one mana and a card for two damage to your opponent's head, then that must mean that every two damage you deal to your opponent's head is functionally worth a card. And that brings us to how aggro decks generate value because the philosophy of fire is largely ingrained into how aggro decks function the idea that for every two damage I'm dealing you that's one less card you draw so I'm denying you one more card is a big part of aggro deck construction it's why red aggro decks really like playing burn spells normally when they're better than the ones we have in standard currently you know my soul for a lightning strike right now it's ridiculous. And I know we have skewer the critics, but it's not the same thing. You know, some some aggro decks tend to lean a little bit more heavily on burn than others. You know, there's there's variations of the actual burn deck in uh, historic because we have access to Wizards Lightning, Skewer the Critics, Shock Lightning Strike, Gitu Lava Runner is a haste creature. We'll be getting Soulscar Mage fairly soon and Amonkhet remastered, you know, so on and so forth. The idea that killing your opponent, like every time you put your opponent on a turn, on a clock that's a turn faster, you're taking a card away from them. That is the idea of the philosophy of fire in practice in aggro decks. But playing a low mana curve also leverages tempo in a big way because... Tempo, at its core, is about minimizing the number of turns your opponent gets. Minimizing the number of productive turns your opponent gets. You do that two ways. You do that by advantaging your opponent on mana, trading less mana for 
in a one-for-one -one card exchange than your opponent spends. But you also do that by what they call time-walking your opponent, where you invalidate an entire opposing turn while progressing your game plan. Counter spells do a good job of this, but even burn spells in aggro decks or just hard removal spells in aggro decks do a really good job of this, where your opponent attempts to stonewall your board with a big creature, and your mono-white Aura's deck jams a glass casket in and exiles their love-struck beast. Well, now you've invalidated their turn and you're getting an extra combat step in, so you've traded one for one, but it's almost like you've taken away three cards. Because you've traded one for one, and then you attack again. You know, that's that's how you start to pull ahead as an aggro player against mid-range and control decks. Low curve leverages tempo. The idea here for aggro decks is you win by resolving more spells than your opponent, not by having more cards than them. And this is something that even more mid-rangey decks tend to exploit on some level. The idea that if you can resolve more spells than your opponent in a short window, you can overwhelm the amount of resources that they have. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And of course, you want to talk about virtual card advantage? There's no substitute for the virtual card advantage of killing your opponent. If your opponent's dead with five cards in hand, they're still dead, even if your hand is empty. So you just gain the cards in their hand and the cards in their library as virtual card advantage. They're not gonna beat that, come on. They can't, they're dead. So transitioning from aggro, which is very very much a tempo-oriented strategy. You get under your opponents, force them to interact at your level, at your mana, your level of mana efficiency, generate virtual card advantage by stranding expensive cards in their hand because they can't cast them yet. You know, catch them while they're bottlenecked on mana, while they're resource-deprived. Midrange wants to toe the line between the two. So when it comes to mid-range decks leveraging tempo, they want to utilize a low to medium curve because by retaining the cheaper cards, the ability to just curve out on someone, play your creatures in order, you still retain the effectiveness versus control decks. A really good example is a deck like uh, Teamer Adventure. You don't kill your opponent quickly in Teamer Adventure. But if you curve Edgewall Innkeeper into Lucky Clover into Fertile Footsteps, you're still doing what an aggro deck does to a control deck. Which is to say, you're still applying a ton of pressure to them. You're just doing it in a different way. because you are threatening to overwhelm their resource base. Their one-for-one -one interaction, and even some of their two-for-one interaction, is not gonna be able to keep pace if you keep this thing rolling. 
you're going to have a little bit of a mana advantage, yes, because you've gotten two lands out of your deck. You potentially untap on turn four with six mana. But more importantly, you've got access to two different snowballing card advantage engines to start to overwhelm your opponent. And you've only spent one card per turn just like an aggro deck would if they were curving out. On the balance, you utilize that efficient mana curve, that low efficient mana curve, to keep from falling too far behind against other against aggro decks. You know, Bonecrusher Giant and Brazen Borrower are just as effective as threats against control decks as they are as answers against aggro decks. Stomping a robber of the rich feels real good. Bouncing a runaway steam can sets your opponent back several turns. Doing both or getting to double stomp allows you to functionally double spell even though you don't actually. You start to generate real card advantage. You start to pull ahead of them. And that leads us to the kinds of card advantage that mid-range decks like to utilize. Mid-range decks normally really, really, really like incremental advantages. Mid-range decks love Planeswalkers. Mid-range decks love Enter the Battlefield triggers on creatures. Mid-range decks love lots and lots and lots of like cards like Rowl's Outburst. Three damage to your creature. Look at my top two. Put a card into my hand. The other one goes into the graveyard. That's a mid-range card. I trade one for one and get a little, you know, and cantrip. Presumably. But some amount, either I'm trading one for one or I'm like philosophy of firing you when you're down low on life because it can go upstairs and then replace itself. You know, three damage to your head is functionally, by philosophy of fire terms, worth a card and then I replace itself with a card from the top. Um, other good examples are cards like uh, Trail of Crumbs that are snowballing engines, yes, but they also just leave something behind for you to use. You know, the whole John Food deck is a combo, is a compilation, a conglomeration, if you will, of snowballing engines that also function like incremental advantage. Because if you play Mayhem Devil and then activate uh, Fable Passage and kill a creature, you get your on-rate value right away. But you're also threatening to snowball them the longer the game goes if they don't do something about it. Trail of Crumbs leaves behind a food in addition to giving you something to do with mana that potentially provides you advantage. You know, Gilded Goose makes a food. It allows you to pull ahead on mana advantage. The, de the deck is so versatile because it does both of these things. It utilizes incremental advantages and snowballing advantages within the same shell. On balance, something like Is It Flash or Teamer Adventure, or like Is It Flash is very much a, a snow, uh, incremental card advantage deck. You eke out little like one and a half for one trades. Rowl's Outburst, Bone Crusher Giant, Brazen Borrower, Gadwick the Wizened, you know, so on and so forth. These are cards that, you know, Bonecrusher Giant, if it 
trades with their two drop and then you untap and cast it as a three, it threatens to trade with their three, four, or sometimes five drop. That's incremental card advantage. It trades one for one and then leaves something behind. In this case, it functionally, quote, draws you a creature. Murderous Rider is much the same way. Just on rate, trades one for one and potentially leaves behind a creature. And I think that's why traditional mid-range decks have been so hard to build right, because there's so many different ways to do the things that mid-range decks like to do. And then last but not least, when it comes to mid-range decks, they also like to utilize virtual card advantage in the form of jamming overpowered threats onto the table that kind of function like Bane Slayers, where the incremental cards function like Mole Drifters. Which is to say, the raw efficiency of your top-end cards and just the sheer volume of text on them, you want that to devastate and overwhelm your opponent. You want your opponent to have to figure out how in the world they're going to catch up to that thing. Jamming a Niv-Mizzet onto the battlefield against a flash deck feels gross. Not because you cast it at six mana and then, you know, your opponent maybe spends a bounce spell to bounce it back to your hand. No, that's not why it's good. Niv-Mizzet's good because it's something that invalidates the counter spells in their hand. They just don't do anything. And then it comes down and devastates the battlefield. Like, that thing just kills all their brazen borrowers. You know, draw for turn, kill your borrower. Cast opt. Deal one damage to your cutthroat. Make you have the spell. You know, it's just an overwhelming advantage when you have a card like that. Baneslayer Angel kind of soft invalidates any creature with five toughness or less that doesn't have first strike. Because if this game's going to come down to creature combat, Baneslayer Angel just smacks down anything that's not in its weight class. That big girl is very beautiful and does a very good job of beating up the things that, are, that would normally be a problem. But even then, you know, even just Baneslayer Angel being able to attack. So it invalidates an opponent's combat phase that deals less than five damage. It's what these top-end threats in these mid-range decks are, are built to do. A really good example in the Jun Food deck is Korvald. Korvald is a very powerful magic card. But at its core, it's a Bane Slayer, not a, not a Mole Drifter. Yes, when it enters the battlefield, you'll sacrifice a thing and draw a card. But if that's all your Korvald does, it is not accomplishing its goals. Instead, you want your Korvald to come down, eat a food, cat eats a food, brings it, you know, comes back, draw another card. Sacrifice cat to oven, draw another card. Sacrifice food again, bring cat back, 
draw another card. You want to, you want that thing to just dominate once it resolves and invalidate creatures that are smaller than it, invalidate your opponent's capacity to race. You, have, you, have you ever figured out how hard it is to race a Corvold? I don't know if you know this, but it's ridiculous. That thing goes from five to you're dead real quick. So, you know, if your your plan is to try to catch up on the board, Corvold can invalidate all of those cards too. And last but not least, let's talk a little bit about control decks. Control decks, the name of the game from a tempo perspective is slowing things down. I don't know how many of you have seen the episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation where they matched up. They were doing the, the War Games episode. But one of the key strategic lines that control decks follow comes from that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which Data is playing a game of Stratagema against a, a Grandmaster. And the first time they play, Data gets demolished. But then the second time they play, the game gets exciting. Everybody's around them. They're going, they're going, they're going, they're going. They're going. Both of them are, you know, feel like they're, the intensity's ratcheting up. And then finally, the Grandmaster takes the, the, the equipment off, throws it on the table, and just walks out. He's frustrated. He's angry. And they asked him, they said, uh, Data, what did you do? He says, well, I changed my approach because the first time I went in with the same goal that he had to, to win as quickly and effect, efficiently as possible. This time, instead of playing the same game that he was, I played for a stalemate, for a draw. I took losses and resources in order to make sure that he didn't get ahead. I took law, I, I, I countered him, I, I cut him off. I stopped him. I was playing for a stalemate. That's what control decks do. You sacrifice in the early turns. You trade one for one very heavily early in the game. With the expectation that once you once things slow down, once your opponent starts drawing lands, well, you've been drawing them the whole time because you're a control deck and you play a bunch of them. Once your opponent starts drawing lands and stops drawing spells, gets exhausted on res on, on resources, then you can you can get paid off for it. Cheap one for one interaction is the name of the game early. Kill their creatures, disrupt their hand to keep from falling too far behind, interact on the stat. Counter spells are a big deal because on the draw they are the best thing in the world from keeping you from falling behind. You know, kill your one drop, kill your two drop, your three drop gets in, counter your four drop. Now you're, now you're pretty well even on the board. They've got one threat. You've got a bunch of cards in hand. You play your land. You've got access to four mana. That's when things can start to go your way. You can go removal spell plus counter magic. You want to set up double spell turns to start catching up. And then from a card advantage standpoint, the, the decks differ. 
as I mentioned last last episode, we were talking about tap out control decks. Tap out control wants big splashy card advantage effects to catch up all at once. You want to get paid off by playing one for ones early by getting a massive dose of more of them. You know, if you disfigure their one drop, eliminate their two drop, neutralize their four drop. Well, now on turn four, I want to be able to, I want to be able to pull all the way ahead. So, you know, you played your three and your five. Well, we're going to extinction event, take the, take the two for one. Hopefully you're low on cards in hand. Well, now I can jam Crocs or I can jam a, you know, now I can jam a, um, a, a drawn from dreams or something along those lines, something that pulls you massively ahead. You know, Shatter the Sky, Deafen and Clarion out of the old Fires of Invention decks. For all the talk about how broken the Fires of Invention decks, they were at the very least predictable. The idea that you could cut them off for the first few turns, cast a fire, cast a Deafen and Clarion to catch up, cast Fires of Invention and another four mana powerful card drawn from Dreams gives you two for one and then you just start raining haymakers on them it's a tap out control deck that was just accelerated that's all the fires decks were on balance drago decks like teamer reclamation or the various forms of azorius control are more interested in every two for one or one and a half for one you can muster so where tap out decks are more interested in big powerful raw card advantage effects Drago decks are more interested in incremental advantage. Cards like Rouse Outburst, cards like uh, Chemistry's Insight to a degree. You know, you'll take the raw ones, the raw two for ones, but you also like the incremental ones. Shark Typhoon is a really good example. You know, against a Planeswalker, it represents a potential one for one. Against removal in your opponent's hand, it represents a, a two for one because you take a card out of their hand and you drew a card against other creatures it represents a two for one because you trade half of the shark typhoon for their creature that's really good like really really good and then Typically, what you want to do is play your two-for-ones and your one-and-a-half-for-ones, so to speak, at similar points in your mana curve to your interaction. So on three mana, you could be holding up Shark Typhoon for one. You could be holding up Neutralize. You could be holding up Growth Spiral plus Opt. All of those things are possible. Your opponent has to play around which one they think it might be. And your goal is to just try to make them guess wrong. Or if they don't play anything, well, now you get to dig through your deck. You get to go find things. You, get, you have plenty of time. And then your virtual card advantage in this shell is from invalidating opposing removal as much as possible by playing very, 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 very few targets. And by cutting off opposing two-for-ones on the stack. 
You know, I said it earlier. If you counter their card draw spell, that's like you gain two cards. Even though you only gain one, even though you only trade one for one, it's like you got a two for one because if your opponent needed those cards, if your opponent needed that escaped Uro to resolve in order to find gas, they're low on cards in hand. Well, that's that's a two for one. You countered the Uro and you countered the draw effect. You traded one for one, but you countered the draw effect. You kept your opponent off of a card in addition to trading with one. And that's all I've got. If you're an aggro deck, you want to leverage tempo. You want to minimize the number of draw steps your opponent gets. You want to minimize, you want to strand expensive cards in their hand. You want to leverage the philosophy of fire and realize that there's no substitute for virtually virtual card advantage of killing your opponent. If you're a mid range deck, you got to toe the line. You've got to have enough early stuff, enough cheap interactive elements to keep pace with the aggro decks, but be able to turn around and take that cheap interactive element and jam it down a control player's throat and make them fall behind. On balance, as a control player, you are playing a different game than your opponent. Your opponent wants to win the game. You're just making sure you don't lose. That is your goal. So if anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, send them to me. I'm at HomewardPathMTG on Twitter. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. You can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It's open invite. Just send a request. You'll probably get to join. We try to have good conversation there. If you want to become a patron, you want to support me directly, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Show's always going to be free. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep it up and you want to get a little bit of recognition out of a dark corner of the back web, you know where to go. And if you want to support the show indirectly, obviously go to our sponsor at puremtgo.com. It is one of the largest collections of Magic the Gathering content there is. And unfortunately, I got to mull this over and put one back. We didn't have any MTG dad jokes this week. I'm trying to ponder and I'm going to have to shuffle because I can't figure out. I'm trying to find one. Normally, it's preordained that we have these. This kind of thing can really trip me up, can trip me up. Um, I can do this all day, but I'm not going to subject you to that. So instead, I'm going to leave on the same note that I always do. We've had a rough go of it for the last few weeks, especially with the announcement of the, the cancellation of in-store play. Things are getting wild. So... When you're interacting with people, everybody's got something they're going through. The Twelfth Doctor comes to us with the best words of wisdom one can ask for. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish and love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So, go forth, brew decks, be kind. And I'll catch you next week. Be safe, everyone.